Friends, welcome back. Thanks for being with us on a Monday as we continue through the Gospel of Luke, as we move into the second chapter. Um, if you're church people, th- this is going to be familiar stuff to you, uh, probably some of the best known parts of the Gospel of Luke, because today we kind of officially get into the Christmas narrative. And you, you may know this, but in terms of the Christmas story, not not the theological story, but the historical story, we only get that information from Matthew and Luke. And so Luke has a significant portion of everything we know about Christmas recorded here. Um, his telling is uh, interesting. Uh, I, I don't know if I'd say sparse, but it's it's succinct. It's to the point. And um, as we get into this, again, this is going to sound familiar, but we'll try to point out a few things as we go. So chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from the Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went off to their own towns to be registered. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David called Bethlehem because he was descended from the house and the family of David. He went to be registered with Mary to whom he was engaged and who was expecting a child. While they were there, The time came for her to deliver the child, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in the bands of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So um, you can approach a text like this at several levels. One of the interesting levels is historical. Um, We do have some records of registrations being taken place. Actually, there's some significant conversation about whether this should say the first registration while Quirinius was governor or the first registration after Quirinius was governor, in other words, after he finished his term, because Luke's dating of this or description of this don't exactly match up with records we have from the ancient world. And so there is some scholarly debate about how to best read the language in a way that seems to indicate the time. When we read it, most of us don't know those things. It doesn't matter to us. But if you're the kind of person who tries to square the biblical biblical account with the Jewish Roman account of the world, th- there are some there is some wiggle room and there is some stuff that has to be taken into account. And if you read Luke's Greek carefully, it seems as though he already did that, but our translations haven't really caught up with that conversation yet. So just so you're aware that that is out there and in play. I think, Michael, the surprising thing for most people, and this is true of Matthew and Luke, is given that we have this very overdeveloped Christmas story, we have Christmas yeah. pageants and carols and poems and nativity sets, I, I think most people are surprised when they come to the Christmas story. This is the birth of Jesus, and it happens in seven verses with very little detail and really a kind of simplicity that that we often forget. So I actually think that there's a little bit of a danger in now turning to the text here in chapter two because of how often we've heard this story. There's a kind of inoculation that happens when you've heard it in the Christmas play over and over and over again, and you expect to see the thing that you've always seen. And, you know, Clint, I I don't know if you would 
say yes to this, but it seems when you are in the church calendar and Advent comes along, it's it's a little difficult to come back to the story and to keep finding new things within it because it is so sparse. It's so short that the sheer amount of content is small related to the large amount of time proportionally we give it uh, in the course of a Christian life when you figure the amount of time that we dedicate to Advent. And so, one of the beautiful aspects of slowing down here, I think, in a study like this is that it gives us an opportunity to look deeper into some of the places we may be less likely to look. And I think the first one I'm going to just offer as an example of that kicks off the bat right from the start here. Um, verse 1, in those days, the decree went out from Emperor Augustus. You know, in most Christmas pageants, there isn't a character for Augustus, and that's just for most of us, a read-past kind of statement. But the uh, Bible scholars who reflect on this passage make the case that uh, to the reader of Luke, it would have been more expected for them to use the Greek name for Augustus, Sabastos, which would have been the more common telling of that in the culture at the time. But that word has the connotation of religious and, uh, you know, uh, power lordship over the people. And so, actually, the inclusion here of the word, the Latin title Augustus, may be a strange word choice for its original audience, but may represent an intention that Luke had to emphasize not the ruler's power and and the ruler's ability to control, but rather um, simply to name and place and to put a date on. It's almost in some ways maybe a pushback against the empire itself, which I think is a fascinating little detail in the story, which we wouldn't miss if we if we would miss if we didn't slow down. Um, but it has something to say about Luke's intention in this story to make it clear that this is about Jesus' birth, this is about the coming of the Son of God, and this is not in any way to put in the spotlight or at the center these worldly powers who, in the face of the arrival of the Son of God, really are of least importance. Yeah, I would say, Michael, not only is it difficult to approach these texts time and time again and find something new, there's a certain danger in that because you begin to try and add things to the text or you begin to try and get creative in a way that the text doesn't need. For for Luke, th these are all the details we need to hear, that Jesus was born, that he's born uh, in Bethlehem. That, you know, the, an explanation of how it is that Joseph and Mary get to. And again, there's lots of historical conversation about why would Joseph take Mary? Why would this be the case? Well, we, I don't, you know, you can speculate all you want on those kind of things, but speculation often gets in the way of hearing the text. Um, while they were there, it was time to deliver the child. And uh, you're right, Michael, Luke points out, uh, at lots of places, this tension between the emperor and the Lord. And words like Lord were used of the emperor. So right. Luke wants to be careful here in making sure that his readers understand the only time he's going to use words that are political in some senses, like Savior and Lord and ruler, are going to be in this text pointed at Jesus. They're, they're not going to be generic words for Augustus or anyone else. They're going to be reserved for the Christ. And 
um, it, it's subtle and you, you don't often, it's probably not something you would get just reading the text. You need to know a little bit of the background in order to get there. Another example, I think, you know, Michael, every children's pageant has this innkeeper and, and folks have heard this before, but that, that doesn't exist. That that's a character that Luke doesn't need. Yeah. Yeah. Luke only needs us to know there wasn't room. Now, does does that mean Joseph and Mary lack resources? Some have suggested maybe that's at play here. Luke is remarkably uninterested in explaining the things we wish he'd explain because right. he so desperately wants us to focus on the major part of the story and not get sidetracked by details. And that's another aspect of this story that I think we pass by far too quickly, Clint, is that there are so many gospel stories where Luke and the other gospel writers really don't care to give very detailed descriptions of when they're happening or who the influential people there or who the witnesses to that event were, stuff that the modern reader, and I would argue the original readers, would have been interested in. Um, Also details like the physical descriptions of characters. Uh, Those almost never exist in the gospel accounts, and I think what Luke does in the telling of the birth story of Jesus is he tells us exactly what is necessary to know that the Son of God, the Lord, is making an arrival in very, very untoward circumstances. Uh, and, And that theme is the crimson thread. Everything else that we get in this story, Clint, is just really sort of the sketches of that. And we and our imaginations want to fill that out. We do things like you already said uh, with that innkeeper. Um, but we would also like to know, you know, why is Mary going along? How far along is Mary in this pregnancy? How long are they in Bethlehem? I mean, there's there's a thousand really good and interesting questions we could ask this text, and it has no interest in answering absolutely any of them. You know, fundamentally, we are told that they're going there, and when they're there, the time comes for the baby, and, and he's born, and there's no room for them in the... I mean, that's, that's it. That's the story. In seven verses, verses one through seven, we have the birth story of Jesus. And I think quantitatively, you could argue that the birth story of John the Baptist is keeping up. I mean, it's tracking in the same number, maybe even more. And so that's just a fascinating way of telling the story, and it exposes for us, I think, Luke's intention. His intention is not to create a kind of big, glamorous Christmas season story, though we would like to get that from it. His point is to is to show us that God shows up in surprising low places, and that's that's the point that serves Luke's telling of the story, and I think that it's worth noting that as we move on. So a couple of things here. We've made the case that Luke is a remarkable storyteller and a very good writer, and I, I want to try, and if this doesn't work, Michael, help me out here. But I, I think what's fascinating is in Matthew, right? If you read the Matthew story, you've got a, a long backstory. Why is it they end up in Bethlehem? Well, because the prophet said that they would. And so the wise men show up saying, where would a Messiah be born? And they say, well, we studied the scriptures, and it would be in Bethlehem. You have this whole thing, you have an entire genealogy given to support the fact that 
Jesus is in the lineage of David. Here, Luke covers the same ground in two verses rather than a chapter. All of that's in here, that, that Jesus is from Nazareth, that his family is descendants of David, that he's born in Bethlehem, and an explanation of why that is, that Joseph and Mary are engaged and having a child. And, and Luke takes that same amount of information, but he gives it to us in subtle, condensed form. There's no quotation of the Old Testament here. There's no as it was foretold. There's nothing like that. But if you look for the boxes that need checked from, for instance, the Jewish perspective, they're all here. They're all wrapped up. And I think it's it's impressive that Luke is able to be to be able to do that almost in shorthand. I, yeah, I, let me give an example of what you're talking about here. The idea of that Jesus is born in Bethlehem, which we're told explicitly is the city of David. Now think of the irony that this child, the descendant of David, is laid in a manger because there's no room in the inn. The, the irony of that shouldn't be lost on us, that the descendant of David is being born and placed in an animal trough in the city of David, the place where he should rightfully uh, be enthroned, that he should be treated with privilege. And that's the beautiful simplicity that Luke builds into this. He can tell the gospel story, but he doesn't need all of the detail. And quite frankly, the fact that he doesn't uh, belabor the cadence of the story should also teach us something, that, that there's some merit in knowing the truth of this, but then moving on to the, to the story that occupies chapters and chapters and chapters, and that's what Jesus teaches and what he does. Um, to whatever extent we would like to hang out here and we would like to overemphasize a story like this, I think the brevity, the clarity, the succinctness of this telling should help move us along that way, I think. Yeah, and it probably helps that we have some backstory. We know something about this child that's being born. But even so, we see here, again, a fundamental difference in Matthew and Luke, and we get to see, again, Luke's... Um, Luke's tendency to highlight certain issues. So in Matthew, right, we have the three wise men, sometimes called the three kings, the magi. They come from far off. They follow a star. They stop at a palace. They bring gold, frankincense, myrrh. Everything about that is big, is elaborate, is um, important. And here, we've told you this, Luke loves the details that emphasize those at the bottom. Luke is more interested in the stories that capture Jesus' humanity, his ordinariness, and as he grows, his particular love and compassion for those who are poor and sick and left out. And, and here it is. He laid him in a manger. We'll get we'll get to more of this tomorrow when we see who gets invited to the party. But here, Luke wants to be sure and mention. Luke can't. I, I don't think Luke can avoid mention. I don't think he can help himself. Oh yeah, and by the way, they didn't find room in the inn, so they just they put him in a feeding trough, wrapped him in cloth. That, that that's that's the Messiah. That's that's how Jesus comes into the world, and and that matters a lot to Luke. 
Yeah, there's another detail here that only serves to accentuate that point, Clint.、Uh, look here very closely in verse seven. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth. That emphasis,、mm-hmm. she did it. That should shock us because Joseph is there too, <laughs> by the way. And yes, we know that that this is not his son, but yet the fact that. She's the one who's given the agency, and and she's the one who's given that、uh, that worthing. That matters. Mary here、yeah. is being lifted up, and Joseph is a part of the story. But Luke, in his culture, should have given Joseph first rate. Well, and who's not there? There's not a midwife. There's not family members. There's、right. not that extended community that would typically have been at a woman's side as she delivered. There's just Joseph probably stumbling his way through trying to figure it out. So yeah, that's that's a good insight, Michael. That、um, that Mary in in some ways does stand alone in this, and、um, that's characteristic of Mary's role in the Gospel of Luke in some ways. I think. Yeah, and I just think connects to that larger theme where Luke、mm-hmm. does hone in on and emphasize the role, agency, and ability, God's ability to work with and through women, and that to us may seem like that's the way it should be, but that is. Groundbreaking, and it's a helpful. If you read other gospel accounts, that emphasis is indeed less present. And so, Luke is not the only voice telling the gospel story, and should not be,、uh, you know, considered to be the only telling that matters. But it is a telling that matters, and this is an emphasis that we have something to learn from. And I think it's worth pointing out when it's doing something that is unique to Luke's own voice. Yeah, agreed. I, this is a. This is a great, you know, and and again, you contrast this story with what we often do of the Christmas story, and it's just, Luke's simplicity is striking. I think. Yeah, because I think of Christmas stories just by way of conclusion. You know, I've seen Christmas stories that are that are funny. I've seen Christmas stories that are, you know, like caricatures with with characters in different times and places. Like we've gone to insane lengths to try to make this story entertaining and to look at different aspects of it. We, I mean, there's a movie about the Christmas story from the animals' perspective, right? I mean, like what have we not plumbed in this story? And yet, what's really interesting about Luke's telling is there's a not really a nod to. Any of that. This is just a basic, very brief, simple telling of the gospel story of Jesus Christ coming, and that we have to remember was intentional. That that even the story itself of Jesus's coming is understated, and that does not reflect the under. It does not understate the reality and the importance of this moment. It reflects that that is the places where God shows up. And that I think is a really amazing insight in a text like this. Yeah, and the and the last word I would say is that there's also I think some foreshadowing, and we can circle back to this tomorrow. But you think, well, the Messiah has been born. Why why does nobody notice? Why does nobody care? Why isn't there a reception? Well, to to some extent, that is the the foreshadowing of the story of Jesus that he came to his own, and it was largely. Unheralded, unwelcomed in some cases, and and that that for Luke starts early in the middle of a night in some manger because an inn was full with nobody really aware of the monumental thing that had just happened, and 
And that is, um, I think, a core of the Christmas narrative, certainly in Luke, but I, I think to some extent also in Matthew. Thanks for being with us today, friends. It's always a joy to spend time together. Of course, if you find this study interesting, subscribe so you can stick with us as we go. You can subscribe to all the audio podcast stuff in the link in the description of this video, but we would love to see you tomorrow and hope you're blessed until then. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.